Well, it's a real privilege for us to be here with you guys this morning. I've so been looking forward to our time with you. And you as a church have been, whether you realize it or not, a wonderful encouragement to us over in Portsmouth over these last couple of years, especially John and Marion spending plenty of time with us. Um, it's been an exciting couple of years. We've had some tough things to work through. I've got John's number on speed dial every time something kicks off. Marion will tell you I'm always disturbing holidays and days off, uh, but they've been a wonderful blessing and encouragement to us. And in January, John will be coming to lay hands on three men to become elders, which uh, we are so looking forward to. Yeah, let's give God a, a hand for that. It is exciting for us. I'm sure you know Portsmouth. It's a big city, lots of need, lots of opportunity. We're passionate about it. We love it. Um, and for me, as a younger leader, having you guys around the corner um, and having John and Marion especially working into our situation is a wonderful comfort to us. So thank you very much. It's a privilege being part of a family of churches. I think there are many churches that would love to know the kinds of relationships that we enjoy being part of Commission, part of New Frontiers. Um, and I'm so grateful to God for it, and I'm grateful to God for you. And I'm grateful to Steve for giving me the opportunity to come and to speak on the subject of the breaking of bread, on the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, the various terms that we use to describe this sacrament. This is something that I'm passionate about. This is something that I believe Jesus is passionate about. And whether or not it's something you're passionate about, or perhaps I hope, by the help of the Holy Spirit, he will speak to us today and stir our hearts to know real faith for encountering his presence as we come to break bread later on. It's a wonderful series that you guys are doing together, devoted, looking at Acts chapter 2. Um, my undergraduate degree was biochemistry, and I spent a lot of time doing genetics. If you want to learn about an organism, about an, uh, any kind of creature, you can boil down into its genetics, into its DNA, and learn so much about it where it's going wrong, what the issues are, um, and all kinds of things you're able to learn by getting into the minutiae, right into the detail. And this series, focused in Acts chapter 2, and particularly those verses in 42 to 46, gives us a biochemical genetic insight into what the church should be like as we look at the very first church born 2,000 years ago as the Spirit of God was poured out mightily at Pentecost. And of all those things which are mentioned, devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to prayer, devoted to fellowship, how many of you go, I'm so excited that they were devoted to the breaking of bread? Wow! We want to know that. And I know you're going to be looking at such things as signs and wonders and the miraculous. And you know, when we think about wanting to be like this early church, this New Testament church, our minds conjure up often you know, the power, the miracles, the healings, the thousands getting saved. Everybody, everybody's needs were met. Incredible community. We want to be like that. But one of the distinguishing hallmarks of the early church was that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And so the question that we're asking today is why? Why were they devoted to the breaking of bread? And what I'm going to do is I'm actually not going to talk too much about the hows or the methods 
And I think actually a lot of the problems that we've had, I think, stem from the fact that we try and work it out so practically. How should we do, should we do it? When should we do it? How frequently should we do it? We're, we're thinking a lot about the methods and the hows, and I think we've lost the why we do this. And the why was it that the church was devoted? That word devoted, what, what does that mean? Passionate, loving, embracing. And, uh, and I think we've got a lot to learn when it comes to this. I believe this is an old mine that has been neglected that is full of gold, full of treasure, full of gold for us to plunder. I really believe that. I want to read a couple of quotes to you from some famous preachers and Reformed theologians. This is Calvin. Calvin said the following, The supper is a spiritual feast. It is a mystery too sublime for me to express or even comprehend. I rather feel it than understand it. And Spurgeon said this, I think the moments we are nearest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. How many of us would go, and that's my experience too. I think often, at least for me, I grew up in a wonderful church, full of the Spirit, enjoying the gifts of the Spirit, enjoying fantastic preaching. But to be perfectly honest, on the rare occasions that we came to have communion, it felt awkward. It felt like a hindrance to enjoying the presence of God. And yet these guys who you will probably often hear quoted in a church like this, Spurgeon and Calvin, Reformed preachers, Reformed theologians, solid Bible-based teachers, for them to say, when I have communion, it's a spiritual feast, or it's like I'm in heaven, I know that's not been my experience. And yet if they're convinced of it, and those two guys are not famous for experiential spirituality, in other words, feeling and sensing, if they are saying they've encountered and known something, then I believe we should be inspired to investigate this. And actually, the reason why I'm convinced is not just based upon the experiences of a couple of theologians, but I am absolutely persuaded by the teaching of Jesus, by what the Bible has to say about this, and you can't escape the fact that the breaking of bread was central to not only the early church, but central to Christ's exhortation to his disciples in terms of how they are to worship. doesn't say much about instruments. In fact, you won't hear, you won't read a single verse in the, Bible, in the New Testament that speaks about instruments, though we're so grateful for it and God uses instruments, instruments in our worship. But you will find this comes up a lot. And so I'm excited for us to be looking at it together. And so I want to break this down into three things, three aspects. For us to really plunder this cave full of gold, then I think we need to know these three things. We need to know our real hunger. We need to know what the real food is. And then we need to know his real presence. A real hunger, real food, and his real presence. Last week, we, in the afternoon, had a load of baptisms in the sea. Yes, we're hardcore. <laughs> no, we didn't wear wetsuits. And uh, it was absolutely wonderful. We baptized two guys in particular. There's a photo of them. You can't see it very clearly, but you're spared the nipples on the right, gratefully. 
That is Kieran on the right, and on the left is Sam. Now, Sam's parents run a famous Bible college in the country. Sam went to Oxford. Sam graduated with first-class honors. Sam is an officer in the Royal Navy. Sam owns his own house. On the right, we have Kieran. Kieran grew up in a council estate in a broken home, dropped out of school, and the Thursday before his baptism was released from a five-year prison sentence for drug dealing. These guys both stood before our church, and as they were explaining their decision to get baptized, both of them said, I knew I was missing something. There was a hunger in me that wasn't being satisfied. And they both get baptized together, one new man in Christ. God has done a wonderful work in their hearts and in their lives. Yeah, it's amazing. Very often we can say there's a particular type of person to whom Christianity appeals. Well, actually, what we have here is someone who feels a hunger despite all his success. And then we have someone who feels a hunger with all his failure. And if we are to plunder these riches, we need to know our hunger. Now, Luke is the author of Acts. You'll know that Luke was um, a physician. He was a doctor. He was meticulous in how he constructed both his gospel and the book of Acts. Every phrase is carefully chosen. And so he refers to the breaking of bread. And in his gospel account, we come across bread being broken on three occasions. The first occasion is in Luke chapter 6, and we'll just read those verses together. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. It will be on the screen as well. Um, in fact, it's Luke. It's a text there. That's not the one, actually. Is there one before? Is there a text just before that one? There we are, Luke 9, 16 to 17. So let's just turn there. This is the wonderful account of the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, as you may be familiar, there's this huge crowd of hungry people who've been listening to Jesus teach a lengthy sermon, and they get to the end of the day and they have no food. They are hungry, and there's this remarkable miracle that takes place. Jesus is handed loaves and fish. I've just picked it up from verse 16. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. The bread was broken as it came to him. Now this miracle is one of the few miracles that is mentioned in all four Gospels. And I want to pick up John's account of it in John chapter 6. John deals with the aftermath of this miracle. Um, And we will read from verse uh, 25 in a moment. But prior to this, Jesus has performed this wonderful miracle. He then crosses the sea walking on the waves. And the crowd follow him, not on the water, they weren't brave enough or stupid enough to attempt that, but they follow around and they locate him. Um, And we'll pick it up from verse 25 of chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, 
When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me. Um, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. This is actually quite an amusing exchange. So this huge crowd has followed him, and like, Rabbi, teacher, how did you get here? And Jesus looks out at this crowd, and he essentially says, the reason you're here is that you've got a free lunch, and you want to have another free meal. That's essentially what he's saying. It's like there's a huge crowd of students following him or something after a free meal. He says, you're hungry, but you're channeling your hunger into the wrong thing. In fact, I think this is a moment of great compassion as Jesus looks at this huge crowd. You're not here because of the signs. What does he mean by that? Well, the miracles are a sign. They're not the end in and of themselves. The miracles are there to point, to be a sign, to point to something else. You've missed it. He says, do not hunger, do not labor for food that does not satisfy, that will not lead to eternal life. And he says, that's me. Now, the crowd are baffled by this. Now, the reality is, is what Jesus is getting at here is a fundamentally important observation that he makes that I would say to you, this is an issue that exists in each and every one of us. We are hungry. We are all hungry. And our hunger can often channel itself into particular things. So, so people would say, I'm particularly eager to have a family, or I'm particularly eager to be successful in my career and give everything, channeling this hunger into these particular things. This crowd was particularly hungry for food. Jesus says, look, I know you're hungry. I'm God, I know your heart. And you're trying to satisfy this hunger in all kinds of ways. And do you know what? For Christians, for us, it's possible for us to come to Jesus and, and to expect him to provide all the things that we believe is going to satisfy our hunger. It's possible to come to him and to come for him, to him rather for his gifts than for him himself. And it's possible that you may even be here today. And the reason why you're here is a good thing. Maybe you enjoy the friendship and the community you have. You enjoy the worship. You enjoy singing. Maybe there are various reasons why you're here. And my challenge right from the outset is, is a good thing the best thing for you? Because what Jesus goes on to do is he goes on to address their hunger and to bring a focus to it. The atheist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre says the following. That God does not exist, I cannot deny. That my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. This is an atheist, right? So what is he saying? I don't believe God exists. I deny that he exists. And yet my whole being longs for him. Very profound observation. My whole being longs for him. Pascal said there is a God-shaped vacuum that exists in every person. What are these guys getting at? They're getting at the reality. Now, you may be in denial of it. You may be 
embracing of this, but the reality is, is that in each of us there is a deep-rooted hunger. And you might, like Sam, give everything to your study, to your work, and tick all the boxes and buy the house. And actually, if you were really honest, the hunger's still there. You may be like Kieran. He's made a complete hash of it and a complete mess of it. It's actually easier to identify yourself as being hungry if you're like Kieran. It's easier than if you're like Sam. Now, when Kieran stood up, you know, one of the great things he said was, I just love Jesus and I love everything about him. He's just amazing. I love him. That was literally what he said. It was so good to hear. This was someone who had eaten something that had made a profound impression upon him. So let's move on next. What is this real food? The real food. John six thirty-five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Huge statement for a teacher or a prophet to make. What kind of teacher or prophet says, I am the bread of life? It's one of the clear statements Christ makes pointing to his deity, pointing to the fact that he was God. And now, this began as odd for people listening in on it. This was an odd thing for him to say, but it got a whole lot weirder. So let's read from verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, that sounds weird to us. But you go back 2,000 years ago, the whole idea of eating blood was utterly abhorrent to Jews. Utterly abhorrent. Now, when he said this, a whole load of people reacted. What is he talking about? Eating his flesh? Drinking his blood? Is this some kind of weird, sick, cannibalistic idea? He goes on to say this is not about the flesh, this is about the spirit. He does to some extent qualify what he says, but even after this discourse, we read that a whole load of his disciples left him. It wasn't just that the crowd left him and went to find lunch somewhere else. A whole load of his disciples who'd been following him regularly left him at this point. And if we're being honest, following some leader, God, who says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, that is very offensive and difficult for us to begin to get our heads around. I would say one of the obstacles we have in the Lord's Supper and is in, and in communion is dealing with this idea of the flesh being food to us and the blood being drink to us as the bread and the wine represents. I think sometimes it still 
is hard to, it's just easier to put our hands out and sing a song and meet with God that way than to have to deal with the possibility of the bread somehow being flesh. Now, over the centuries, this has caused all kinds of disputes and debates in the church. You may be familiar. Time of the Reformation was a massive moment when these things were discussed and debated. The Roman Catholics teach transubstantiation, that as the bread is eaten, it literally becomes the flesh of Christ, and the wine literally becoming the blood of Christ, transfused, becoming a new substance. This was a doctrine wholly rejected. That understanding, that teaching came out of passages like this, total misinterpretation. Now, we might just think, oh, this is just theological, this is just philosophical. Around the time of Bloody Mary, a whole load of families were burned at the stake for claiming a Protestant interpretation of the Lord's Supper. Do you know that? Can you even begin to imagine that? Families being executed because they denied transubstantiation? That they said that the teaching of Jesus here isn't a literal teaching, but it's pointing to something even more fundamentally important. In fact, of gospel central significance, what Jesus is teaching here. This is hugely important. Jesus says so himself. He says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have eternal life. Eternity is at stake here. Let's go to Luke chapter 22. And this is the great inauguration of the Lord's Supper. These are the very final moments Jesus has with his disciples before his crucifixion. And we'll read from verse 14 of Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This was an intense, emotional moment. This isn't a moment for banter. This isn't a trivial, casual, now we're going to have communion. This is Jesus literally contemplating his suffering literally contemplating going to the cross, being crucified, and everything that came with that. This is an intense moment, and this is the first occasion where the Lord's Supper takes place. And still now, his disciples don't really have a clue what's going on. Still now, this is baffling. The next thing we read is that they start talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They still haven't grasped it. They're still not understanding him. Jesus takes the loaf. He breaks it very visually before them, very graphically before them. This is my body. And he breaks it. The bread is broken. Now, we understand 
that what was taught in John 6 and what Jesus is teaching here in Luke 22 is that we should, as Christians, as we see Christ being crucified, realize that this is the bread of life being broken and distributed for us to eat and be satisfied by. What Jesus is telling us here is something profoundly mysterious, something that Calvin said, this, this is a mystery too great for me to begin to comprehend. But what I know, because this is what Jesus has taught, is that in his atonement, in his crucifixion, as his body was broken spiritually, my soul is nourished by his broken flesh. That this is a vivifying moment, a life-giving moment, an empowering moment. That as his blood is shed and his flesh is torn, it is as if he is breaking it and giving it to us to eat. And again, conceptually, this is hard for us to begin to comprehend but of such huge eternal significance that Jesus establishes this sacrament that remembers his death. He doesn't establish a sacrament for his resurrection. That's not to in any way say the resurrection isn't of fundamental importance. Without the resurrection, we have no God who died on the cross. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Without the resurrection, um, death still has a sting. Because of the resurrection, the sting has been pulled out, and there's hope for us as we face death. But he establishes communion to celebrate not primarily his resurrection, but his death. Now, as charismatics, we go, but we want to declare the resurrection. And the, and the, and the challenge is, is that sometimes we can move on so quickly to the resurrection, and so we should celebrate it, and so it should be proclaimed every time we gather. But we can often not necessarily linger enough and consider enough what the torn flesh of Christ means for us. His body was broken for you. His back lacerated. The nails driven through his hand. His side punctured by the spear. His, his brow and with the thorns impressed, embedded into it, his flesh was broken. And he says, broken for you. Because your soul is starving. And the only chance my soul has of life is if the life-giving flesh of Christ is consumed, that I might be strengthened that the life of Christ might come into me and that I might be drawn into him. And so in a mysterious and wonderful way, the spirit of God is at work and is in operation as we break the bread, as we eat it, and as we drink it. And just as the very elements of the bread physically really go into our being, making us stronger as we eat, physically we're strengthened as we eat, so as we do this in faith and in reverence and in in an act of worship, our souls are being strengthened, built up, made healthy, strong, able to live, able to fight, able to run, able to praise, able to enjoy him. He works wonderfully and mysteriously. 
As Calvin said, I can't really understand it. This was a guy who had a massive brain. I can't really understand this, but I feel it as I'm participating in it. Spurgeon's like, I'm lifted to heaven. It's like I behold my king, the risen lamb, and I'm feeding upon how wonderful he is. Wonderful, brilliant, descriptive terms. Have you eaten this food? Is the flesh of Christ bread to you? Is his blood drink to you? Is it sweet? Is it nourishing? Can we get beyond the morbidity and the oddness of the language to see the beautiful thing that's being described here? It's so wonderful what's being described here. Not a trivial, quaint banter moment. A profound, deep, enriching, intimate moment. And yet his disciples still were clueless. So thirdly and finally, we need to know his real presence. And we're going to read from Luke 24. This is one of three resurrection accounts that Luke provides in his gospel. And we know from Acts that Jesus was resurrected and there were 40 days before his ascension. So the fact that he includes this particular narrative is interesting. How many things did Jesus teach and do in those 40 days? Do you ever wonder about that? What did he do in those 40 days? So much of it's a mystery to us. But what we know, we read, and what's here is given for purpose, intentionally in the sovereignty of God, that we might really benefit from it. This is the Emmaus Road encounter. And uh, we'll read from verse 13. Jesus has appeared to these disciples. He's walking with them. Says the following That very day, the two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. If we go on. The next, thanks. So I'm skipping on to verse 25 here. Jesus is telling them all about the scriptures. He says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. They're complete. This, at this point, the disciples have spoken about the crucifixions. They're like, we don't know what's going on. We thought he was going to restore Israel. We thought he was going to come be our Messiah like David. They're thinking politically. This is three days later. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the peoples have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So at this moment, remind you of the words that came during our worship. And he vanished from their sight and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying the Lord has indeed risen 
and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. I love this account. So many reasons. All the scriptures he's saying, they're all about me. I'd love to have heard that sermon as he went through the whole Bible. Look at David, look at Moses, look at Joshua, look at the prophets. Guys, now they still didn't know who he was. Their eyes were blinded to the fact that they were walking with Jesus. Who they thought he was, I haven't got a clue. But but you know what? You can, again, come to a church like this week in, week out. You can be right by Jesus and not actually know who he is. It's like your eyes are blinded. You're here. He's here. But the two aren't connecting. And it was as he took hold of the loaf and as he broke it, it's like one of those movies when suddenly there's like, all of the things are coming together and suddenly I understand and see it. Their eyes were opened. I can imagine in that moment what flashed before their eyes, the feeding of the 5,000 as the loaves were broken and distributed, the teaching of Jesus about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, the moment that they have that last meal together as he again takes the bread and breaks it and then they, the crucifixion as his body is broken and then again he's before them, he takes the loaf and he breaks it and wow, this is who he is. This is what it means. Suddenly the crucifixion, not this horrible, terrible defeat and failure he's alive he's here it has purpose and meaning this bread is broken and being fed to us by him oh it's an incredible thing and an incredible moment for the disciples so much debate has taken place about the nature of the presence of Christ in the supper do the loaves and the wine literally become his body and blood No, absolutely, 100% not. I would say it's heresy to even go there. What do they do? They point us to a very real spiritual feasting that we must enjoy. And if we don't, then we are under a judgment. We face condemnation. Those disciples that walked away from him in John 6 walked away to him to their peril. If this is hard for you to understand and hard for you to hear, don't reject Christ on that basis. Praise God for his Holy Spirit who reveals these mysteries to us. And what he wants to reveal to each of us today is that what took place on the cross 2,000 years ago is not some abstract moment in history where some great prophet and teacher was executed. But there is an immediate, real application to your life right now to, that will make all the difference to your eternal destiny. And so as we break the bread and as we drink the wine, in faith, our souls are being strengthened and enriched and fed. This is why we're devoted to the Lord's Supper, because we're devoted to Christ. We're devoted to him. 
Our love is for him. There's no one like him. No one could have ever have accomplished what he accomplished. No one could have defeated sin and death on the cross. No one lived the perfect life except him. No one was able to conquer Satan, but he did it emphatically. And he is the victorious king. And so we are devoted to the Lord's Supper because like Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians 10, the supper proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. And so until Christ returns in great triumph, which he will, we break bread and we drink wine and we point those who don't yet know him, those starving souls, we point them to Jesus, whether it's Kieran, whether it's Sam, whether it's people who are so-called successful in the eyes of the world or failures, all of us have a deep-rooted hunger that can only be fulfilled by feasting upon our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the supper points to. Isaiah 55 verse 2 says this. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Listen diligently to me. Can I ask us to listen diligently to these verses? Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Can I urge you to seek Christ as the fulfillment to your hunger? Those of you who are in bad relationships right now, you know it's a bad relationship. You know it's messy. You've had people already challenge you about it. It, it's, it's a path that leads to destruction by, by veering away from the word of God and away from the encouragement of Christ to draw near. Can I appeal to you? Eat rich food. Don't eat from the table of Babylon. The book of Daniel, we have these young guys who are fed this food, sacrificed to idol, but they said, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to eat something better. There is a better meal for us to have that the supper points to, and that is Christ himself. This is, these are signs, like the miracles, the bread and the wine, they are signs to point us to him. So I'm going to ask us to stand and ask the band to come back, and I want us to, to see this moment as we take the bread and as we break it. Luke records the breaking of bread as the breaking of bread for a very valid and important reason, that we would know the flesh of Christ broken for each of us. So I'm going to ask us, if you're comfortable, let's just reach out our hands. Jesus did this. He commanded his disciples to do this. He took the loaf and he broke it. And just as his flesh was torn, that we might feast upon him. So now, by the help of the Spirit in faith, we can feast upon Christ. And he can satisfy you beyond anything else possibly can. Let's pray. Jesus, you are an awesome King and God. And we are so grateful that you were obedient to your Father's mission, 
that you went to the cross, that your body was torn, that you took upon yourself all of our sin and shame and defeated it. And I ask you that you would help us as we come to break bread now, as we come to eat and drink, that in faith you would nourish and strengthen our souls. I pray for those who are hungry here. I pray for those who've been looking and searching, people whose eyes have been blinded, as it were, that just as you opened eyes, as bread was broken, that you would open eyes today to see who you really are and what you've really done. Your body was broken that our souls might be made whole. Amazing. You became the very ugliness of sin that we might become the beauty and the righteousness of God. What a wonderful, profound work you've done. The band are going to play. We're going to respond in worship. What I would like us to do as we take the bread is I want you to, as you take a piece, just break it. And as you do so, thank him that his flesh was broken for you. And as you drink the wine, his blood poured out for you. This is a moment we share together. It's, a, it's an intensely personal and a wonderfully corporate moment that we share as Kieran and Sam come together, united in the gospel, united in what Christ has done. I'm going to hand over to Steve in a moment who will lead us into this. Let's worship him together. As the musicians are just playing and they're going to sing and we will finish with a song, it's magnificent. This is a magnificent truth. We're going to take bread and we're going to take wine. And so we're going to invite you to come forward. If you are not a believer, if you've never given your life to Christ, just ask you to sit where you are. And unless in your heart you're saying, I want him to fulfill that empty hole. And you can do that as you take bread and wine. Say, Jesus, your body was broken for me. Your blood was shed for me. I might know forgiveness. You can do that right now. But if not, just let the bread and wine pass you by. I'd like you to come out as the, as the band play, as they worship, and we'll, we'll, we'll then close and sing together. But I want you to take bread. I want you to take some bread and break it as we've been encouraged to do. Do it in twos, maybe family groups, maybe with someone sitting next to you. Maybe you need to do it by yourself. Take some wine, drink and share wine. The blood of Christ. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Shed for you. So let's do that. So let's come forward. Let's take bread. Let's reflect on the wonder of what Christ has done for us. My God would welcome me into this mystery. Say, take this bread, take this wine, now the simple made divine for any to receive. By your mercy we come to the altar.